certified black belts earn 16.7 to 26.8% higher salary than those who are not certified. You know, I got lucky. I had a company that invested in me many, many tens of thousands of dollars. This is what we're doing. We're doing a subscription model. This means that you decide how much that you're going to pay by how long you take to complete the program. If you finish faster, you pay less. It's it's pretty much that straightforward. As for now, it's going to be $270 per month. That's less than $9 per day. Just consider this. Even if it takes you a full year to complete it, you'll still pay several thousand dollars less than with a comparable program. The value of this goes far beyond that. And the value of the fact that it's self-paced, your boss doesn't have to excuse you from work. You don't have to take vacation. You do it on your own time. So here's how you apply. Go to www.esuccess-methods.com slash BB2017. Here's the password. All lowercase, e 6 s dash BB2017. That's the only way you can get to the application page, and this is the only place I'm sharing that password. The application deadline is February 28th, 2017. Again, limited to only 20 candidates. I wouldn't hesitate. I would take advantage of this right now. The price is low, and again, I can only take 20. Once that space fills up, that's it. Welcome to the E-Success Methods Podcast with Jacob and Aaron, your weekly dose of tips and tricks to achieve excellent performance in your business and career. Join us as we explore deeper into the practical worlds of Lean, Six Sigma, project management, and design thinking. In this episode number 160, we continue our discussion with healthcare improvement specialist Shauna Daikima on her work applying task-driven activity-based costing at the Medical University of South Carolina. If you're just tuning in for the first time, find all our back episodes on our podcast table of contents at esuccess-methods.com. If you like this episode, be sure to click the like link in the show notes. It's easy. Just tap our logo, click, and you're done. Tap, click, done. Here we go. Right. So, all right. So you've got, you've got the, uh, you, you're to the, call it a value added map of some sort. And you said you've used it, can use it to identify waste. Then you're on step four for time estimates. Sure. So once you have your process maps, so we'll go through and build the steps first, make sure everyone is good with this is how the process works. And then we go out and we manually observe. So for all of these, because there are so many different people involved and, Um, As you mentioned before, perhaps some vested interests involved in this process. We, the Performance Improvement Department, went out and manually collected this data ourselves, um, along with several of our interns and student workers, Mm -hmm. um, to get time estimates for each step in the process. So if I'm thinking about this, this this is some people standing watching with a stopwatch and a clipboard? Absolutely. How'd that go over? It really depended on the area and how this was explained to people. And again, I think a lot of this rests on how this is presented to people, because when people experience anything new, Mm -hmm. um, we can usually there's a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of reticence. Most people do not jump into something brand new, feet first, ready to go. So in the explanation of what we're doing and why we're here, it really needs to be presented to people that this is not punitive. I'm not going to go report this back to your manager that you spent 16 minutes on break today. Uh, (laughs) This is really me just wanting to know. And I usually present it as I'm not the expert. So I'm not a nurse. I'm not a physician. I don't know what your process is like. And most people open up to that because Very rarely, especially in healthcare, 
to people go around asking them, hey, what is what is your day to day work like? You know, right. what goes well? What doesn't go well? What do you think could work better? You know, how much time do you think you spend doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, most of them tend to open up really well when you just want to know what they do. Now, is there a current rule of thumb for the actual value add, value add percent or patient care touch time versus all the rest of this uh, work that might be considered waste? Is there a, a standard in healthcare standard that is pretty common? There really isn't. Um, there's been a few papers published recently trying to determine, at least for nurses on the inpatient side, how much time do they spend either with the patient or performing value-added activities for the patient, i.e. Um, holding medications or getting supplies to do a mm-hmm. procedure versus non-value-added. And the numbers are all over the place, um, in part because typical papers that I have read focus on one type of nursing or one type of unit. For example, a general medical surgical nurse may spend a different percentage of time with their patient as opposed to um, an orthopedic nurse or a trauma unit nurse. Um, So there really isn't a hard and fast percentage rule for value-added versus non-value-added time. Long explanation to no, there really isn't. Sure. Got it. Well, and a lot of industries don't even understand the concept of value-added versus non-value-added, but I think it's easy to at least, easy is not the right term, but uh, easier to conceptualize the amount of time spent in actual patient care versus the amount of time spent doing paperwork that somebody else other than the patient cares about. Absolutely. Um, It's the advent of electronic medical records. Um, I think this is why a lot of published literature has come out recently because organizations want to know, okay, we have EMRs now, um, electronic medical records. Has this actually improved our efficiency Mm -hmm. or are nurses spending more time trying to wade through the EMR um, than they were with paper? You know, it's just a little bit of anecdotally, but uh, when my my primary care doctor first came into a appointment with a laptop and then started typing as I was speaking to him, I I felt that he lost that bedside manner at that at that moment. So there's you know there's something to be said for the advent and of technology, but uh, there's always it always takes something away uh, as you go through it. I think. I I don't disagree. I think a lot of a lot of the efficiencies or inefficiencies that are realized have to do with how a technology is implemented, um, not necessarily the usefulness of the technology itself. So if we implement an EMR well, it should increase our efficiency, but also not take away from that interaction time. Right. But do we always go through the process of planning and implementing something well? Well, and it's a change. It's a change for everybody to get used to, uh, including the patient. All right, so that's step four. Now, step five and six, uh, on paper, estimate the cost and capacity of resources seems straightforward, but I'm I'm guessing that it maybe it's not as straightforward as it sounds on that one bullet. It is not. Um, and I keep saying, going back to especially in healthcare, because we are an academic medical center, so we are slightly different from your typical hospital that's not a teaching hospital. Our physicians, our surgeons are almost anyone, is also faculty in the College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. So they're paid by two different entities. So when we get into estimating the cost of the surgeon, we had to go through this whole debate of, you know, are we estimating the total cost of the surgeon, i.e. their whole salary, or are we estimating simply the portion of the salary that the hospital pays for the care they provide? 
Um, so that's a debate that other academic medical centers may go through. That's simply because we have a university and a hospital that both pay portions of salaries. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had to go through that for estimating the cost of residents. So resident salary, again, is not paid entirely by the hospital. So it was a philosophical debate. You know, do we are we only estimating cost to the hospital or are we estimating the total cost of this person, um, which is not necessarily all paid by the hospital? Um, similarly, with capacity, you know, if we're talking about a surgeon who is also a professor who also has a research arm, are we you know, estimating his total capacity or just the portion of his capacity that he gives to the hospital? But getting into capacity, one of the biggest uh, things that I emphasize to people when doing these is make sure your capacity assumptions are realistic. Um, I often see process maps and value stream maps that are operating under the assumption that we have perfect capacity and perfect throughput. Mm-hmm. And we don't. We all know that humans are absolutely not 100 percent efficient. And so we need to make sure that we're building those assumptions into the math behind our process maps. Um, I usually say at best people are going to be 80 percent efficient. You know, we're taking in break time. Potentially something goes wrong. They're never going to be 100 percent efficient. Our operating rooms are never going to operate at 100 percent efficiency and throughput. So build in realistic assumptions. And I, I, you know, just from as an outsider point of view and and just I uh, agree with the the 80 percent. And that's something I would use in something even less strenuous, uh, such as manufacturing or another office service organization. But with the amount of the kind of hours that um, most of my nursing friends work, I just find to be extraordinarily long. And I just surprised that I'm just surprised that the body can do that uh, and body and brain. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was even lower than that in, in my estimation. I would not be surprised either. It's an ongoing debate, uh, both for nursing shifts and for physicians and residents, because most healthcare shifts, if you're on the inpatient side are 12 hour shifts mm-hmm. and People get very tired towards the end of 12-hour shifts, so I would absolutely not be surprised if we start seeing a decrease in efficiency towards the end of those shifts. So what, how do you figure in the use of uh, uh, equipment, expensive equipment, or, or any in particular energy use? Does that factor into this model? Yes. So typically with the TEABC, um, I will present several different categories of costs that are separated out and then added up into a total cost. So I will give, you know, personnel costs so they can see how much our people are costing, how much time people are spending. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I will separately give them the cost of any machines, the time of any machines. So, for example, we did a TABC in our laboratory. and There are several processes that have delays based on machine time. Um, Or in manufacturing, if you're waiting on a machine to complete its activity before you can move on, I will give them that so that they can see this is the portion of the process that I can't change unless I change the machine. Mm-hmm. But yes, so we'll factor in machine time, equipment costs, and I will always give depreciated equipment costs. I don't like giving the purchase cost of equipment. It's not a true picture of how much the equipment is costing us. Right. Um, any contracts that are involved in that equipment will include And then we'll include separate costs for um, 
we use a general overhead term in healthcare that is not strictly financial. So that will include the cost of space, but also the cost of the energy utilization of that space. So the output of this is basically a detailed flow diagram or process map that has times for each activity box and cost of each activity box uh, and, and everything rolls up at the end. So what do you do with something like this at this point? So at this point, this will not be the only deliverable that I present. I will give the maps and I will give cost data, but I also like to give my recommendations um, as an improvement professional for you know what I observed in the process that I do not believe is adding value. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's training, perhaps it's me as a person, but I cannot simply deliver a process map without saying, I observe these steps that really don't seem to add to the process. They slow it down or they could be made easier, faster, better, what have you. Um, So I will deliver recommendations along with our process maps, um, our cost data and our time data. And our department at MUSC functions um, almost like internal consultants. So after I have presented my deliverables to the leader of this area or the person who initiated the project, Mm -hmm. um, it's then up to them to decide what do they want to do with what's been presented to them. So as you're taking your time, your time stamp, your time notes, you're you're, uh, jotting down whether or not you consider it value-added or Mm non-value-added? So I consider the the ability to identify waste as both a a blessing and a curse, right? Um, if uh, it's it's nice that it's eye-opening to be able to know that you recognize it, but then now it's a curse because you get frustrating every time frustrated every time you see it. So I consider that to be the, like the burden of a practitioner in in health healthcare. Are are there active programs to get the people doing the work, nurses, physicians, to be able to identify what might be wasteful? Yes, depending on the organization, these could be formal programs or they could be informal programs. We at MUSC have a classification for nurses um, in which in order to attain a certain tier of their position, so level one, level two, level three, et cetera, once you want to attain a certain tier, you have to participate in improvement activities and document that you've done projects, that Mm -hmm. there have demonstrated improvements if you want to make that next level up. Other organizations, it's more informal, so they may have Um, a service line or a nursing unit council or a group of staff that internally work to improve processes, but it is certainly not standardized across the board. What you have here now is at this point, you have a a deliverable, you've given them the recommendations. In, In this particular project in this area, what sort of decisions have you seen come out of this work to that's leading things in what you would consider the right direction? Certainly. So for our total hip and total knee, um, as I mentioned before, the big driver was can we survive under CMS bundled payments? Um, The final deliverable that that champion really wanted was what is my cost data? And if it's not under the bundled payment, what do I need to do to make it so? Mm -hmm. So we presented him with several, um, several ways that he could get out of his process. And since then, we've seen them do several different things. Um, so one thing we noticed is a very highly paid professional doing work that they are vastly overqualified for. Yes. Waste of intellect. 
Um, so we presented them with that. You know, we see that, you know, your nurse practitioner is doing paperwork that your administrative assistant could be doing mm-hmm. or is taking phone calls that perhaps your office nurse could be doing. You may want to move these duties over to someone else so that they can either see more patients, generate more revenue or do something you know, equally value added with the skill set that they have. And since then, they actually have been making some changes so that their nurse practitioners are not doing administrative tasks. One other thing that we noticed is that for some medications, um, they require monitoring for a, an extended period of time. So um, Coumadin is a blood thinner. Mm-hmm. And if you place a patient on Coumadin, they require monitoring for several weeks afterwards to make sure that they're not having any adverse reactions or that their dose is correctly titrated. And the person doing the monitoring, because this isn't specialized monitoring, it's charting lab values, we noticed that this was another highly paid professional when we could have you know, an administrative assistant, a tech, or even a nurse doing this for a much, at a much lower pay grade than this other person. So we brought this to them, A, because I'm noticing some waste just in how we're using personnel, but B, we also got into a discussion, you know, in terms of drugs and standardizing this process, each one of our surgeons used a different um, anticoagulant therapy following their surgery. So I have one surgeon using Coumadin. I have one surgeon telling them to take over-the-counter aspirin. I have another surgeon telling them to take a very, very expensive drug and should we be standardizing this because aside from the aspirin, these other two drugs cost us money Uh, and they're all at very, very different price points. So this spun us off into, okay, each one of the surgeons clearly thinks that their particular anticoagulant therapy is the best, which is why they're using it. Mm -hmm. So can they produce results stating their patients do better on this type of anticoagulant therapy? And so the, the, um, the charge was given to the surgeons. So find the data to back up your particular therapy. If it works the best, that's what we'll do, whatever is best for the patient. So this wasn't necessarily a financial decision, but a standardization to at least make it easier um, on our nursing staff, but also in terms of monitoring. Coumadin was the only one that requires monitoring. If we put them patients on aspirin, or if we put them on the more expensive drug, we then don't have to monitor. So if Coumadin isn't the best, we're wasting a lot of time and money doing all of this monitoring on our patients. Wow. So in that case, I mean, and that's a, that's a sensitive, you know, now we're getting into the, the craft of, of medicine. And, and whenever you get into the craft of how a person does their job, it becomes pretty sensitive. And what level do you guys get involved or is uh, at, at MUSC? as the consultants, um, or do you, or do you, are you able to bow out of those difficult negotiations or whatever? It depends on the project and the team. So not only do we function in terms of being the experts in Lean Six Sigma and process improvement methodologies, we also function as this impartial mediator. So we may be called in and asked to facilitate a meeting in which we have no stake because the parties are having a difficult time reaching an agreement. And I think we're poised very uniquely to be in that role for one reason, being a Lean and Six Sigma department, we're highly data-driven. So if we're having an argument and no one can back up their side, we may say, we're going to take a break. 
go find data to back mm-hmm. up your stance. Otherwise, we're just arguing about opinions. Right. And I don't make decisions based on opinions. You are listening to E6S Methods Podcast, brought to you by E6S Industries. Join us on our website at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. I will be providing one-on-one coaching, self-paced online learning. As a reward for you being a loyal listener to the podcast, I will lock in 20 participants at this price. Go to www.e6s-methods.com slash bb2017. Here's the password, lowercase e6s-bb2017. So if you can afford that $9 per day, you're hardworking, you're superstar in the making, I wouldn't hesitate. Once that space fills up, that's it. So now that you've had this exposure within healthcare quality improvement, performance improvement, is there anything that you've seen that you're sort of chomping at the bit that you'd like to really uh, sink your teeth into into, as far as making an improvement, anything in particular? I think healthcare, so there are several things that I would love to get my hands on. Readmissions is a big topic in any inpatient healthcare organization. How can we prevent avoidable readmissions? There so that's are some, coming back for the same ailment twice? Or multiple times. Okay. Either the same ailment or something related to the care that we gave that was insufficient. Not coming back for a completely different issue. Um, I cannot prevent, for example, car accidents. So right. if you come back because of a car accident... We can't do a whole lot about that, but healthcare in general is really facing and has been facing a paradigm shift. So we were previously on a fee-for-service payment basis. So we build insurers, patients, the government, whoever the payer is, for each individual product and service that we used, and we were paid for it. Now we're shifting into paying for value and bundled payments. So now we're having to really work at, you know, it's what we are billing for adding value to the patient. So we're encountering things such as, you know, we no longer are reimbursed for the care that we provide if a patient gets a nosocomial infection. If they get an infection in the hospital that was our fault, we don't get paid for it. So we then have to provide that care out of pocket. Um, CMS is moving towards not paying for or not paying large portions for readmissions. So if a patient is readmitted because we provided insufficient care, insufficient education, something went wrong in the process, and they come back, we pay for it or we don't get reimbursed for it. So readmissions is huge there because it involves not only the care we provide, but also how do we educate our patients? You know, I can't send my patient home with a set of IKEA instructions who are caring for their newly diagnosed diabetes. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work like that. So how do we really partner with our customers to make sure they're getting the care they need? It's one thing. Um, the, the analytical side of me really wants to dig more into data and TDABC because, again, because hospitals and healthcare organizations have really not been looking terribly closely at granular level costs, We can't really say, what does this cost me to use this? So when we talk about utilization review, how do I really know what the cost to this organization is for providing X medication versus Y or doing this procedure versus that procedure? Um, Or if I am looking at cost avoidance data, 
if I do a project and I say, okay, we went from having 15 falls a month to two falls a month, what's my cost avoidance? A lot of healthcare organizations can't tell you. So when you talked about paying for value and and going back to the TDABC, now somebody outside of the organization is determining what the value, the price is for the value for, for that particular procedure. Is that sort of just a black box sort of organization? You don't know how they came up with those values? Uh, generally, no. So if we're talking um, value as defined by Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, um, they're required to publish anything that they do that's going well, anything they do, A, but also anything that they do that's going to affect payments or reimbursement. So all of their methodologies and data sets are published. They're usually hundreds of pages long. I could be exaggerating here. Um, but they're very long documents. So do I think everyone reviews them to see what CMS is defining value as? Not necessarily. In terms of private insurers, it really depends on the insurer, again, because they're not standardized across the board. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina may define value differently than Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan or mm-hmm. Texas. Um, they may be similar, but they may be slightly different, and the states also have different populations. So it really depends on the insurer, which is a whole other Topic. Sure. So yeah, no, because I mean, you got you basically have two things. This is what we're willing to pay. This is what we're considering is, for lack of a better term, what the market value is. But I'm pretty sure the market value is based off of some estimates of what they consider to be a better than median cost performance of an aggregate of providers. I would think I mean, they have to have they're getting that data from somewhere. It's very difficult and cloudy. So <laughs> only recently, I would say in the past five years has healthcare really started to move towards price transparency? Um, Your average consumer, so if I want to order a new laptop, I can go to five different sites and know exactly how much it's going to cost me um, and how much additional it will cost for shipping and adding a protection. But if I'm shopping around for where I want to have my hip surgery, that data is almost impossible to find. And not only is the cost data hard to find, Outcomes data is difficult to find, too. So if you say, I want to go to the best, who are you relying on to know what the best is? Um, so when we talk about the value equation for healthcare, it's so muddy because we don't have lots of cost data to compare. And we don't have lots of outcomes data to compare either. Mm-hmm. We're typically relying on CMS data, which is only Medicare and Medicaid patients, to look at value equations because private insurer patients, the data doesn't have to be published. Okay. So you brought up shopping around for hip surgery, and, and that is a completely foreign concept to me uh, in, in my brain. the uh, There's no shopping around. There's going to whichever hospital is closest that will perform that uh, procedure. Uh, would you recommend that I take a different tact on anything like that? I absolutely would. Yes. I think... The days of um, just going to your local hospital and that being good, I think consumers, customers, our patients are demanding more. They want to be sure that whoever's doing their surgery um, is good at it. They're going to have good outcomes. Their recovery period will be a good experience and that they won't be paying overly for it. 
Um, so even though most patients aren't paying the full cost of whatever procedure they have done, they'll still pay a percentage of it or whatever portion of their deductible and copay is left. So they want to be sure that they're getting a good value for their money. The last thing you really want to do is pay several thousand dollars and then not have a good outcome or mm -hmm. get an infection while you stay in the hospital and then end up worse than what you started. So I would absolutely advocate for patients um, who are having an elective procedure. You know, emergencies are, are very different, but if you're having an elective procedure done that can be scheduled ahead of time, or if you're looking for a doctor's office to visit, absolutely look around at how they're rated, what their outcomes data are, and ask them for cost data. The worst they can tell you is, I don't have any. Mm -hmm. uh, the best they can tell you is, here's on average what it may cost. Where and, and But they would, are they obliged to share quality related metrics with the, uh, you know, as far as outcomes are concerned with complications of surgeries or anything like that? Or is, or is that an out external source of information? So now we're, we're getting into some, uh, some treacherous waters. Got Nobody it. wants to publish how bad they are, right? Right. No manufacturer wants to publish how many automobiles have to be recalled. No hospital wants to publish how many infections or wrong site surgeries they had in the past several months. Is it required to be published? Yes and no. So hospitals are required to report certain data measures um, to the government. Those are not always published um, in an identifiable way, if that makes sense. So they may be aggregated to show you know, hospitals in South Carolina or overall hospitals for Medicaid patients or overall infection rates for total knee patients. Um, so it can be difficult to dig through and see, you know, what is this particular hospital's outcomes data? Now, there is a push for transparency. So, for example, the Medical University of South Carolina, we took it upon ourselves to publish most of our quality data. It's available on our website for anyone to look at because we want to be honest with our patients as they're searching for where they want to have their care performed. We want them to know what they're getting into up front. It's, it's also a good um, marketing and competition measure. So mm -hmm. if our infection rate is lower than our neighbor, well, absolutely, you want to come have your care done here. Well, that sounds like an excellent uh, place to, to stop this one. Is there anything you'd like to add that uh, I haven't asked you about? Well, going back to TDABC, one thing that I'd like to add, um, we discussed its use as a traditional lean tool, but I'd like to add that if you have the cost and the time data as you're looking for improvements to make, one thing that you can do with that that's different from traditional flowcharting or process mapping is um, use it to predict some of the outcomes of the solution that you put in place. So one example in my presentation that you saw is we observed some waste in a process because a printer would time out. So, you know, do we replace the printer? Well, it would actually be more expensive to replace the printer than to just let people deal with the timeouts. So then you get into, is this a financial decision or a people decision? But those are decisions that you can start to make based on solid data. So I would say use as much of the data that you have as you possibly can when you're looking at solutions. And then I imagine as this being a, a living document that a administrator in charge of any of those areas would, you'd encourage them to continue to refer back to that when making decisions, but also somebody has to update it if anything changes. 
Absolutely. I would say any flowchart process map, value stream map, shouldn't be set in stone because hopefully you are continuously improving those processes. So your maps will continue to change as you make changes. So absolutely, there should be differences uh, from month to month, from year to year in what the process looks like. All right. Excellent. So Shauna, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? So my email is, my work email is by far the best way to get in touch with me. And that email address is my last name, D-Y-K-E-M-A, at musc.edu. Um, I am on LinkedIn, but I don't check it terribly frequently. So if you do message me there, it, I cannot promise that it will be um, seen in a reasonable amount of time. So, well, it also means that uh, your, your employers don't have to worry about you shopping around. So that's good. <laughs> You're happy where you are. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very happy in healthcare. I would say to anyone looking at healthcare as a potential job opportunity, um, there's a lot of work to be done. Healthcare is very, very young in its process improvement journey. So if you are eager to make an impact, there are tons of opportunities. All right, Shauna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Aaron. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode 160 of the E-Success Methods podcast. Stay tuned for episode 161, where Jacob and I return to project task estimation techniques, this time the Agile way. Don't forget to click like or dislike for this episode in the show notes. Tap click done. If you have a question, comment, or advice, leave a note in the comment section or contact us directly. Feel free to email me, Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at esuccess-methods.com or on our website. We reply to all messages. If you heard something you like, then clamor and share it. Don't forget you can find notes and graphics for all shows and more at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. If you're not climbing up, you're falling down. Are you going back to the um, IISE conference this year? Are you planning on speaking again, or was that a one-time deal? Um, I enjoyed the presentations I attended. So when they open up for submissions, um, as long as we have some completed projects and I have one that I will probably be submitting for um, I will at least submit to be a speaker again well if you are I, I hope to uh, run into the actually I was actually supposed to be at that last one but I ended up dropping out at the last minute but uh, if you are it would be a wonderful to meet you in person absolutely will you be at the ISPI conference this spring ISPI the International Society for that one is Montreal. No, I am not. I don't know about that one. I will be. I will be at that one. I'm speaking on a different topic, and I will be at the Healthcare Systems Process Improvement Conference (HSPI). You know, it's no secret how Jacob and I feel about all those certifications out there, and we see too many incompetent belts claiming to be certified, but they're really not good problem solvers, project managers, or change leaders. So I will be providing what I'll call an elite level of mixed training. It'll have one-on-one coaching. It'll have self-paced online learning, whatever pace you can go. And then you'll get training all through two projects. And all these can be concurrent. This is what we're doing. We're doing a subscription model. This means that you decide how much that you're going to pay by how long you take to complete the program. If you finish faster, you pay less. It's it's pretty much that straightforward. 
There is a common misconception that there are a select few of recognized certifying bodies. There is literally no universal international central certifying body for Lean Six Sigma. There are many who keep trying. There are many who claim to be. There are some that are very good, and there are some that are very, very bad. And because you are a listener to the podcast, you should be able to trust that we, Jacob and I, know what we're doing. Go to e6s-methods.com slash bb2017 with the password, all lowercase e6s-bb2017. That's the password. Come April 30th, be ready to learn.